Our second lesson is a continuation of the first. We have seen that the last verse of the first chapter that Nehemiah has stated his position as one of cupbearer to the king. Remember, he is in a beautiful palace far away from his homeland and with a very exalted position. Now, what does he do when he learns of the distress of his people? And it came about in the month of Niacin in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, Send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to me, for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timbers to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was upon me. Amen. I have a friend who's always sending me funny little things that appear in church bulletins. I've never really made a prayer like this in church, but I have to admit that I've been tempted to a time or two. Uh, it's composed by an anonymous pastor for obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, and he was praying about the people who give him different excuses for not attending church on Sunday morning. And when I think about this wonderful man, Nehemiah, if you get right to the end of his book, he does some pretty rough things to people who uh, trade on the Sabbath day and who are not willing to adhere to God's laws. Well, anyway, this one pastor, while we're not under the law as strictly as Nehemiah, uh, we still have laws that we are to be ruled by under the liberty that's in Christ. He makes this prayer for people in his church to think about. O Lord, hear these petitions of thy servant, who is fed up with the excuses that members make for their absence from worship on Sunday. Grant that the fish will bite on weekdays, but never on Sunday. <laughs> Trouble the waters with such a strong wind that all water sports will be stymied. Turn every golfer into a duffer searching for lost golf balls in sand traps, ponds, and snake-infested thickets that bordered the fairway. Awaken all late sleepers from nightmares with visions of sevenfold heated ovens from which there is no escape. <laughs> Let the paper boy sleep until after lunch. 
bring ceaseless static to the radio and endless snow to the television. Let the yard worker suffer a mower that will not start, a hose with a leak that cannot be repaired, and a grouchy wife and many neighboring dogs that bark all day. Bring flat tires right in front of the church so those parents who merely drop their children off for Sunday school <laughs> can see the others. Cause empty gas tanks or flooded carburetors for those who leave right after Sunday school. Let those who stay home because of company have 13 persons to drop in unexpectedly for lunch. <laughs> Let the roast burn in the oven and the cake fall flat for those who stay home to cook. Let the family be gone on vacation when those who went visiting arrived. May Sunday be miserable and, and an unforgettable day for those who intentionally and deliberately failed to keep the vow which they have made to uphold the worship and work to the best of their abilities. <laughs> well, Nehemiah would have had some sympathy with that. And one of the reasons is that, uh, that this message is appropriate for us today is that something terrible has happened to us. We have really lost the courage to care. It takes a lot of courage to care about other people because you have to become vulnerable. You always do this when you are willing to show agape love, the kind of love which does not expect something in return. I thought that the chapel talk that was brought last Wednesday by Dr. Newton Wilson, our dean of the college, was one of the best I ever heard. In that chapel talk, he talked about four things that he had learned through his vast experience as a psychological counselor, uh, a field in which he holds his Ph.D. degree. He told us that uh, we often had a contempt for ourselves, but we needed to remember that when we understand that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, that we can legitimately love ourselves, not in a selfish way, but in a right way, have a proper appreciation for ourselves. He told us that because Christ loves us, we can love ourselves and then assume the responsibility, secondly, of loving other people, of showing them love by serving them. And then he told us that we could also, through the power of Christ, change. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. But he told us that all of these things could come about only through the path of obedience. And much like his sermon was last Sunday, he impressed upon us the fact that faith must be demonstrated by obedience. There is a great gospel song that says, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But what happens to a nation when we merely give lip service to the things which we say we believe, but they are not translated down into the place where the action takes place in our wills. We become indifferent and we do not wish to be involved. And this means something that is hurtful to us. A few years ago, many people in this country were startled when there was the report of a woman who was attacked in a New York apartment. It was in the Bronx, and she was attacked at the stairwell and literally choked to death. There was a meeting taking place in that same building of a number of men, and they came outside on the landing, heard the woman scream. They looked down to see what was going on. They saw 
and they went right back into their room to attend to their business. Their business, which was, believe it or not, passing a resolution on world peace and racial justice. You see, they were the executive committee of one of the best-known liberal organizations in New York City. They were deeply interested in the welfare of people in the abstract, but not in a concrete way. Now, that does not come from some fundamentalist preacher. I have just read to you from the Intercollegiate Review, and this is by Will Herberg, a distinguished Jewish philosopher. And he has said that what has happened to us is that we live in a fun-oriented culture in which we want a permanent state of euphoria, of well-being, and we do not want that state to be broken up by caring for other people or individuals except in the abstract. I often notice in traveling on an airplane that when the plane takes off and the signs are put out about the seat belt and the smoking rule and then especially after they feed the people there is a great deal of buzz of conversation and perfect strangers seem to unburden their hearts to you and then as you near your destination and the pilot informs you that you're about to land, there, a certain stiffness comes back over in formality. Then when the plane lands and you get into the bus, if you're taking the limousine or the bus into town, people hardly speak to each other who've been chattering away on the plane just a little while before. Uh, we, when we're in the same boat for a little while, we talk to one another, but then when we get out of that, then we break that little bit of fellowship. We're afraid to be vulnerable. We do not wish to talk with other people. This man, Nehemiah, had seen and known about his people. They were the Jews. They had been gifted greatly by God with the loftiest of all conceptions of him. And the great Ten Commandments, which had been delivered by Moses, which are great in their reasonableness and great in their protection for God's people. And yet when the people violated the commandments of Moses, God, God did exactly what he said he would do. He allowed them to be scattered to the four winds. And so they were taken away into captivity, 1,500 miles away, the 70 dreary years of captivity. Their temple had been destroyed. The walls of their city had been torn down. And then you will remember how Ezra, one of the great preachers, a great scribe, went back to start to do what he could to assemble the people again for the temple services. And then you know that some years later it became necessary for someone else to care. And here was Nehemiah, who must have been a brainy and able person, who has now risen to a place that would be the equivalent of a prime minister a very great favorite to the king, Artaxerxes. Remember that he is in a place where the curtains are made out of the most luxurious cloth and are gathered together with silver, that there is marble on the floor and golden couches and the very best of food to eat and the most interesting people to talk to. But one night, one night Nehemiah is walking near the gate of the city and he hears something that is music in his ears because he can understand it. It's the language of the Hebrew. And he hears some Hebrew 
pilgrims that are coming back into this city far away from their own blessed city of God. And he understands their language immediately, so he stops them and he talks to them. And he asks them a question. I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. One great commentator on this particular first, pa first chapter of Nehemiah says that in these first three verses, the one thing that he did that prompted in him such concern over his people was to inquire. He sought to inquire about what had happened to those who had gone back. Do we ever try to inquire about what these missionaries that Richard Gray were these men were praying for a moment ago? These men and women who labor for Jesus in Zaire and in Korea and in Brazil and in other places? When we get a missionary letter, do we throw it aside? When a missionary comes to talk, although he is not eloquent and gifted and able to speak like a lot of other preachers, are we bored and say, oh no, not a missionary today. I don't want to hear him tell about the field. If you do, then may God condemn you for that attitude. Open your hearts and listen to what these people have to go through. Maybe they can't always be the greatest of speakers and preachers, but they've got some information that you ought to know about where they work and labor for the Lord. And the Lord's interested in your putting forth a little effort to listen to it, a little time to read their letters, a little time to pray for them. You can't buy off the Lord. You can't reach in your pocket and pull out some money and hand it and say, now here, Lord, I'm going to give this to you, but don't worry me anymore about that missionary. I want to get that off my conscience. It takes something to care. You inquire. You inquire. I had, have had days when there have been interruption after interruption, and someone said, why don't you stop it? I can't always stop it because sometimes there are needs that are very great. There are people who trust you and they come to you with the great needs and someone's got to help them. And I'm willing to help because I belong to Jesus and I don't think he'd turn them away. And as long as the strength holds out, that's the way I want to work it. Uh, we seek to help in his name. Nehemiah made an inquiry to find out what had happened. And when he heard what had happened, when he became informed, he identified, he wept, he wept. This shows that his heart was with his people. I saw people weep this week when a young man who was a member of this congregation and is a member of this congregation now, he and his wife had the gift of a little baby born, but with a terrible birth defect and great heartache has come upon them by reason of repeated surgery. And in this past week, it's just almost been unbearable. I saw people dissolve in tears because they love that boy. 
and they love his wife, and they're hurt with the things that hurt him. This is a part of what Estelle Brusso so beautifully brought out at prayer meeting uh, in the colloquy on Philippians last Wednesday night about koinonia. Koinonia is a fellowship, but it's the kind of fellowship which feels for someone else because you love them in Christ and you are concerned about what hurts them too. One of the cruelest things that you can say to another person is, I don't care what you do. That'll tear up the marriage. It'll tear up a relationship between a son or a daughter or between a father and his son. I don't care. I don't care what you do. I don't need you. Those are words of rejection and hostility, and they're hard words. And those who belong to Jesus ought to go get them back real quick and say, I didn't mean that, and don't talk that way. We need one another. We need one another in Christ. We're not in the business of cutting each other off. So Nehemiah takes the time to inquire, and he also has the heart to identify with these people. He identifies with them, and then he intercedes for them. He prays for them. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about praying. Anytime you pray and mean it, you better get ready to be part of the answer to the prayer. Moses was out there in the desert. He was thinking about what he had done back in Egypt when he saw the Hebrew people oppressed, how he'd been driven out of Egypt and had gone out into the desert country, and his heart burned with righteous indignation and wrath as he thought of how oppressed the Hebrews were. And he said, oh God, why don't you do something to deliver your people? They've been in bondage all these hundreds of years. And God startled him and spoke to him. Okay, Moses, I will. You go. And what did Moses do? He started making excuses. He couldn't speak like someone else could speak. The Lord said, what's in your hand? Just an old shepherd's staff that he had carved out of wood. The Lord said, throw it down. He threw it down. It became a snake. He said, pick it up again. Moses picked it up and it became a rod again. The Lord said, you take that old rod and you go back and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. If we're willing to pray about something, we ought to be willing to do something about it. To do something about it. When we are, that makes a difference. When Paul was in that jail in Rome, that little church back in Philippi that had been persecuted for its faith in Jesus passed the hat around and took up a collection and they sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, all the way to the city of Rome to take their old pastor some money to help him out when he was in jail there. And Paul's letter is full of the most remarkable expressions of love for these people back in Philippi. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And I'm sure they thank God upon every remembrance of him. How they helped one another. How they were bound together. They prayed. Paul said, in every prayer of mine, making intercession for you. 
And so Nehemiah makes his prayer. I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth commandment, keep a covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant. And then he prays. And then about four months pass, and then he is brought into the presence of the king. Now he'd been praying all this time, but he comes one day into the presence of the king, and great and famous folk do not like for people to burden them with their troubles. I know a lot of rich people who do not want anyone to come around them who may be sick or troubled or have some sad message. All they want is just a circle of joy. And they do not wish to be troubled by this. I'll never forget being in one of the most famous houses in the whole world. And a servant came to my room, a butler. He knew that I was a preacher. He was a black man. And his wife was being operated on for cancer. And I could see that his face was very sad. And I asked him, like the king is going to ask Nehemiah, why this sadness was in his heart. And so he started with his lips to quiver and his face to break up into tears and told me that his wife was being operated on for what might be terminal cancer. And then he said to me very humbly, Reverend, will you pray? And I said, of course, we'll pray together. You kneel here by me. And I put my arm around him and both of us prayed together. Then later, when I told the lady of the house, she's looked with the greatest disdain that one of the servants should have mentioned his personal problems to a guest in the home. And I thought, great, how can this be? Have no feeling for a servant? He's got feelings too. No feeling for someone else. But this is the way a lot of people think. Well, the king saw that he was sad and the king asked him about his sadness and when in, it's, we, we read here that wherefore the king said unto me why is thy countenance sad seeing thou art not sick this is nothing else but sorrow of heart Nehemiah admits it then was I sore afraid he was afraid but courage is fear that says its prayers and look what he said he, he prayed to the God of heaven. He prayed to God to give him wisdom. Now, he had been praying for a long time, but here comes a little quick telegraphic prayer to the Lord to give him wisdom about what to say. And he knew how to take advantage of his opportunity. The king uh, did find, then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou would send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen sitting also by him. I've often wondered why that phrase is there. Maybe that she had some favor toward the Jewish people, or was a Jewess herself. How long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I set him a time. And then he went ahead and listed the things that he needed to get through there. Letters of diplomacy to get him there. Uh, letters that would also give him the timbers to build by. 
It was a very thoughtful plan that he had worked out. And when that prayer was answered, he was ready to go. And then, of course, you know the story of how when he arrived in Jerusalem and saw it, he kept his counsel. He did not tell all his heart to everyone because he did not want to bring about enemies right away. He knew they would come eventually. He goes about the walls of the city at night. He looks at what has to be done. And then he sets his plans. And then he begins to get them all to cooperate, those who are in the city, each to build a section. And for sure in chapter 4 you'll read about Sanballat and Tobiah. They're always around. Always around to hinder the work. And so they come and try to slander Nehemiah. They try to say that he's inciting a rebellion against the king. They laugh at his efforts to build a wall. They say if a fox should run and jump upon it, the wall will tumble down. And then when that doesn't work, then they try to get a false prophet who will go in and try to get a man like Nehemiah to hide because they are threatening now a force of arms. But Nehemiah will not yield to this. Instead, he arms part of his people with the sword and the spear, and part of them watch and part of them work. He organizes things, and he works systematically and beautifully, and in 52 days, he accomplishes a tremendous thing, something that must have seemed like a miracle. I think the 126th Psalm must have been written in response to this. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. He cared enough not only to inquire and to identify and to intercede, but lastly he got involved and did something. And when he got involved and did something, it was a blessing to all those people and is a blessing to us to this day. If a revival occurs in the church in Black Mountain, it blesses us. If heartache occurs there, then it hurts us. We are bound together to one another in the Lord. One of the most remarkable people to me in the history of the United States is Robert E. Lee. Robert Edward Lee, for 43 years, for 40 of his 63 years, was a soldier. And yet perhaps the most remarkable work that he did came after the war. When he went to tiny Washington College, which had been named for George Washington because he had given a grant of, of stock to the school that it might be started in Lexington, Virginia. He came there having calumnies heaped upon him by crazy people like Secretary Stanton who wanted him hanged and imprisoned and everything else. He came to little tiny Washington College with 40 students and put that brilliant patrician mind of his to work with all the dignity and the authority that was at his command. And he did an amazing thing. He saw the school built. He saw it built in a tremendous way. Well, one of the things that impressed me most about this book, about him, was that Robert E. Lee's faith in Jesus Christ seems to have been the dominant thing behind all that he did. 
As the Confederacy's military might declined, the soldiers' religious zeal increased. In 1863, a revival swept through the ranks. Prayer meetings flourished. Lee frequently took part in these and never failed to listen to exhortations from one of the ragged rebels. In both private and public worship, General Lee was so ardent that his chaplain said he was more concerned with winning souls than battles, and they may have been right. Look at what else Lee says. I have never cherished bitter or vindictive feelings, and I have never seen the day come when I did not pray for the enemy. That's an unusual general, isn't it? Thus, in 1865, when he came to Lexington, he came more as a missionary than as an educator. He did not speak of Christian education because it never occurred to him that any other kind of education was worth considering. Yet he took care to affiliate with a college that was not controlled by any denomination or sect. To him, religion was a freedom to be enjoyed and not a law to be enforced. In this, he was profoundly a Protestant. I find it so hard to keep one poor sinner's heart in the right way, he used to say, that it seems presumptuous to try to keep others. Lee had hardly arrived in town before he was elected to the vestry of his church. He, he made known at once his Christian sentiments, and he said to the board of trustees at their first meeting, I dread the thought of any student going away from this college without becoming a sincere Christian. There's a man who went back to build something, and he built it because he identified, he, he inquired about what was going on, he identified with their needs, he prayed about it, and then he became involved in it, and he's left a great university as a result of it. He had the courage to care. There were people who ridiculed him just as they ridiculed Nehemiah. May I say this to young people who are building maybe not a college, but a life. There's a famous old story that I heard a man from Romania tell one time. It was of a, a king who lived over in Eastern Europe. Right next to him there was a bordering king, a young king, who was always trying to antagonize the older king into a fight. The old king didn't want to fight him because he remembered when he was young and he knew that he had superior power and that he could overcome him and defeat him at any time. But finally the young king went too far and he provoked the old king's wrath and there was nothing to do but to send out his soldiers to defeat him. But the old wise king told his soldiers, capture the young man and bring him back here to me. And so they did as their king had ordered them and they did capture the young man and they brought him back. And the old king feigned great anger. And when the young king was brought into his presence, he came storming out and told him how he had tried to have peace with him again and again and that it had failed. And how he deserved to have his head lopped off at that very moment. And the young king crouched and fell on the floor at the, at the boots of the king and and pleaded with him with tears not to kill him, and he was quaking and shivering all over. And the old king said, All right, I'll give you one chance to save your life. He said, Tomorrow morning the drums will beat and the crowds will assemble, 
and you will be given a bowl of wine. You will carry it under a white, over a white cloth, and you'll walk from one end of the city street to the other. And if one drop of that purple wine stains the cloth, the executioner will be standing in back of you with his axe, and he will cut off your head. The next day, a great crowd had assembled, and the old king had arranged for one side of the street to cheer the young prince, and he had arranged for the other side of the street to boo and to hiss and to call out names to him. And the black-dressed executioner was there with his hood over his face and with his big, sharp axe, and they took the linen cloth and they held it in the young prince's hand and then they put the, the silver vessel there and they filled it to the top with wine right to the very brim. And then the drums began to meet and the strange procession made its way down the cobblestones. Part of the crowd cheering, part of the crowd hissing and booing and catcalling and the young prince looking carefully not to spill a drop. And when he got to the end of the square, he hadn't spilt any. And the old king came out and spoke to him. He said, when you walked, one side of the street was cheering you. What did you think about? And the young prince said, I didn't think about anything except that bowl that I had in my hand and that I couldn't let a drop of it spill. And the old king said, what did you think about when there were people hissing and booing at you and calling you names? And the young king said, I couldn't think about anything. I simply looked at that bowl that was in my hands. And the old king said, young man, you have a soul given to you by Almighty God, and one day you're going to go back to God. Now there are people who will cheer you, and there are people who will hiss and boo at you, but you have a responsibility and that responsibility is yours to bring your soul back to God. We have been given by the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit the power to walk in newness of life in Christ. We can have the courage to care. We can be informed. We can identify with those who are in pain. Jesus told us to suffer. Uh, as he said that we are to suffer as those who are in prison. We ought to pray for those who are in Eastern Europe and behind the bamboo curtain and other places. For those who go through troubles. Jesus told us to weep with those who, Paul told us to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are bound together. So we identify, we intercede, we pray for them, and then we become involved, we take up the task. We, don't, we can't do everything, but we can do something. And what we can do, by the grace of God, we're willing to do. And the wonderful thing about that is, when we do it, we always feel better in it. If you've never accepted Christ, I want to invite you to accept him as your Savior and Master today. Let us bow in prayer. And now, O God, our Father, we have heard about a great man, Nehemiah, and yet we have the responsibility now to inquire and to identify and to pray and to become involved. And so we pray that you will help us to rise up as men and women of God, 
to lift high the cross of Christ and to accomplish the things to which he has called us. For those who know not the Savior, make them to know that he is ready to receive them now, that King Jesus is always listening. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all now and forevermore.